Hey guys, and welcome to the Moms and Murder Podcast, a true crime podcast featuring myself, Mandy, and my dear friend, Melissa. Hi, Melissa. Hi, Mandy. How are you? I'm doing all right. This week has been so weird. How are you doing? I am doing all right, but like the slightly chippier version yeah. <laughs> of all right. I'm more in the Matthew McConaughey space. All right, all right, all right. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's been it's been in, it's been an interesting week. My um kids wrapped up school, but it was only a half week and then the last day they only went a half day and so my whole schedule this week has been weird. It was one of those weeks where every day this week I thought it was a day like in one direction or the other. I never had the correct right. day like that it was, you know, going on. Anything that was going on this week was very confusing to me. Uh, and then we talked about recording on today, which is Friday, which is a little bit unusual for us too. So yeah, my whole schedule this week has just felt kind of turned upside down. It's kind of thrown me it. for a loop. I feel like I've been saying yes to a lot of things and like then putting it in my calendar and being like, oh, um, why do actually I actually yeah. doing other things? <laughs> like, I, like I'm just fully free all the time and then realize like, oh, wh- there's something going on every freaking day. Why would you try right. to add something? <laughs> um, but yeah, no, I get that. But we're coming up on the end of the school year. Yay. Yay. We made it. Yes. Another year. You're going to have... You're going to have a seventh grader and a fourth grader? Yeah. Is that right? Wow, that's wild. Yeah. I know. I don't feel mature enough to have a seventh grader and a fourth grader. I know. Mine will be eighth and third. And the eighth really freaks me out because I think, oh my gosh, you're almost done with middle school. Yes. Then you'll be in high school. I have core memories from that time. So I could really screw you up right now. And I really need, oh my gosh. need to get my act together. I think about that all the time with my kids. I'm like, okay, wait, how old are you guys? I'm like, what do I remember from being that right? age? And then I'm like, oh, crap. I remember quite a bit. So. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. You don't have to like look back at pictures and wonder what you right. were thinking. You like fully remember like disliking your mom at that age or right. whatever. So exactly. yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm in for the same sure. boat. For sure. Yeah, so um, we are super excited to get into the story that um, we're telling this week. We're actually going to do this one in two parts, but we're doing it a little bit differently this time. And uh, if you're listening to this episode on Tuesday when it comes out, then we have some wonderful news for you. The second part is actually already available for you um, on Patreon. So those of you who are already on Patreon, then you already know that you've seen part two come out today. So both parts are currently available. The second part will be on Patreon. If not, then you will get part two next week as usual. So we're just trying something a little different out kind of to make uh, make a two-parter a little bit easier, um, I think, for everybody. I think some people like to have the option to just go and oh, listen to totally. part two right away. So It's torture for me to wait, and then I'm like, I'm going to have to re-listen to it because I don't remember everything like as a listener. So yeah, I'm very quick to be like, oh, is there a second part available? Let's go ahead and start that now. So hopefully yeah. you'll like it. Yeah. So, and this is actually a really um, exciting story for us to talk about this week or uh, this month, really, because it's pretty relevant. The trial for this case just wrapped up a couple of weeks ago. So we have like all of the information from beginning to end. And that's kind of something, I mean, that's something that we have all the time on the show, but not something that we usually are on top of this quickly. So it's kind of exciting that we are getting this one out so early. Um, So this is a story that you might have heard about in the media, but it's likely that you have not heard the full story. As unfortunate as it is, the true crime world sees a lot of murders that happen as a result of marital strife or because of an affair. Melissa and I say all the time that we just don't understand how murder is ever the most reasonable option over divorcing somebody, but these types of crimes continue to happen. 
The story today is full of shocking, upsetting, and salacious details, but at the end of it all, it's a tragic story about a young woman who didn't deserve to die, especially not just days before Christmas. It was 10:11 a.m. on December 23, 2015, when Connecticut State Police were alerted by a home security company that the panic alarm had been activated at a home on Birchview Drive. State troopers were dispatched to the house, and while they were en route, a 911 call came in to the county firefighters. In the background, they could hear the sound of an alarm, and a man on the other end of the line was moaning and asking for help. A member of the Ellington Fire Department arrived at the house a few minutes later and walked into a horrifying scene. The right side garage door was open, and as the fireman walked up to the front door, he noticed that the storm door was closed, but the inner door was open. So this is like a house that has, you know, a regular front door and then kind of like a, you know, the doors that just have like clear right. glass through, like a screen door kind of thing. After ringing the doorbell and getting no answer, he opened the storm door and yelled inside, but he was met with only silence. The smell of smoke filled the air and a haze lingered on the first level of the home. So this fireman carefully stepped inside and saw blood droplets coming from an open doorway that led to a basement, as well as more blood drops and a trail of blood that led into the kitchen. As he made his way through the house, he finally came upon a man. This man was lying face down on the floor with a brown aluminum folding chair tied to him. And it looked as though he'd been, you know, tied to this chair and had fallen over trying to free himself. This man, named Rick DeBate, told the fireman that this intruder was still in the house. So the fireman left through the front door while he called for assistance and let the state troopers know that there had been a possible home invasion. Back inside of the house, Rick was zip-tied to the chair by his right hand and his right leg. He also had a zip tie around his neck and blood on his head, pants, and shirt. And near his left hand was a cell phone, which is presumably the one that he just used to dial 911. But the true horror that unfolded in the home was discovered in the basement. After Rick told officers that his wife Connie had been shot by a large person wearing all camouflage clothing and a mask, the officers rushed to the basement to find her. The basement was divided into two different rooms. There was one that was set up as a children's play area and another room where the family stored firewood. Inside of this wood room, officers found a Ruger 357 Magnum, and at the right side of the room near the boiler, they found Connie. The 39-year-old mother of two was lying face up on the floor. She had been shot and her body was cool to the touch and she had no color in her face. Investigators cleared the rest of the house and found no intruder, so they shifted their focus to Rick to find out more about what happened. First responders administered aid to Rick. They cut the zip tie off of his neck and freed him from the chair he was tied to, and then they asked him what had happened. Rick told the officer that he had been driving to work when he got a text saying that the alarm was going off at his house. So he then turned around, drove back home, and when he got inside, he heard a noise coming from the second floor but he thought it was just the cats that they had in their house roaming around until he encountered a male intruder wearing all camo plus a mask and gloves. Rick said at the time he was not able to recall whether the intruder was white or black. Rick told the officer that his wife Connie had been at the gym and she had also returned to the house while the intruder was there. Connie allegedly came back after Rick had already been tied to the chair, so he yelled at her to run and to get out of the house. But according to Rick, it was too late. He said the intruder shot Connie in front of him and then used a blowtorch to burn him. 
Rick said that he managed to burn the intruder with the torch during their struggle, but that the intruder had also stabbed him with some kind of a razor or a knife. Rick said he then managed to struggle up the stairs and he was able to hit the panic button alarm to call for help. He said his cell phone was on the kitchen counter, so he was able to finally get a hold of it and to call 911. The EMTs on scene noticed that Rick had cuts on his left chest area and on both of his thighs. He was then transported to a hospital for further treatment of his injuries. Rick and Connie had been married for 12 years, and they had two little boys that were nine and six at the time that Connie was murdered. Connie's boys were her life. She was a very devoted mom and an all-around kind and cheerful person. A friend named Liz Sprague said that Connie was friends with everyone and loved spending time with people. She really opened her heart to everybody that she met. At the time of her death, she was working as a pharmaceutical representative, and she was the former vice president of the Ellington Volunteer Ambulance Corps. Connie loved to spend her time volunteering at many places, including Boston Children's Hospital, where she held fundraisers. She also loved Halloween and would often throw Halloween parties. We know that it's cliche and, you know, people say all the time that somebody lights up a room. But in this case, it's really an accurate description of the way that Connie and her personality were. Sometime in the early 2000s, Connie met Rick DeBate, a man with a big personality and a bit of a temper when things didn't go his way. Rick worked as a computer network administrator. He was never in any trouble with the law, but one of his childhood friends said that Rick was the type of guy that just couldn't stop spouting off at the mouth whenever he was upset. We don't know a lot about the early days of the relationship, but on July 4th, 2003, Connie and Rick got married, and they eventually had two kids. The family lived in a large colonial-style home in an upscale neighborhood in Ellington, Connecticut. But Rick and Connie didn't have the happiest of marriages. He would often talk negatively and downright mean about her when he was talking about about her to his friends. He would say things like she was being a B-word. He would actually call her that. When he would talk to people, he would send messages Ooh. like, yeah, he would send text messages. Like for one example, he sent a message to his friend Rick regarding whether or not he could go and play poker that night. And he wrote, quote, sorry, brother, but I'm really stressing it here on a school night. I really don't want Connie yelling at me for this crap, end quote. So really just making her out to kind of be the bad guy when she says, you know, not she doesn't want him doing certain things or she would prefer if he stays home. He's like then telling his friends like, oh, she's such a this and a that and a B word. And like, can you imagine getting that text? Like there's one thing like I will complain to friends. You and I will do this about husband stuff and, you know, just silly shenanigans. We're not really like, I hate this person. It's just like, men be doing this kind of right. stuff and just like in good fun but if you were sending me these just text messages on a regular basis a saying how much is. right yeah, yeah like that is that's a weird thing to hear from um someone in a marriage that you've got to be like um what are you gonna do about it are you staying in this are right. you guys you know it, it's just weird it would be weird and tough to get those messages and even know how to respond to them right. without and being definitely like, awkward what are and un- you doing? right and uncomfortable for the friend you know receiving so, these messages yeah absolutely so Rick's friend actually said that he thought the couple had a strained marriage because of the fact that Connie had more of a type A personality while Rick was more laid back and less rigid which keep in mind this is coming from Rick's friend and from what other right. people said about Rick like he was not really that laid back he got upset a lot over things that you know, maybe weren't always that important. They were sometimes trivial things. So 
take that with a grain of salt. You know, that his friend yeah, said yeah. Connie was the type A and Rick was laid back because he's probably basing that opinion on what Rick has told him. And the him. text that he's exactly. getting. Exactly. Yeah. So he doesn't – I don't know that he necessarily knows the full situation behind right. that. He also said that Connie complained about things like disciplining the kids and a lack of help from Rick with things like, you know, school homework and other parental tasks, which sounds like pretty run-of-the-mill Things that families are, you know, (laughs) struggle to kind of get on board with each other with. So that doesn't surprise me. Uh, But the majority of the couple's fights were actually centered around money because Rick was not very good with money. So Connie really controlled most of the family's finances. But because of this, Rick often lied and would manipulate things that led to this frivolous spending and, you know, covering it up and keeping secrets from Connie regarding how much money he was spending. By December of 2015, things were pretty tense around the money issue, and the couple was really trying to figure this all out. On December 21st, Connie was working on their finances, and she sent a text to Rick that said, quote, Hopefully by the start of the year without Verizon, cable, and your raise, maybe you can now have $500 extra a month to save. And if you can get your interest rate lower on your car loan, you can pay off your loan by the latest December of next year, freeing up almost another $300, end quote which is another very typical thing for spouses to write, like when you're trying to figure out money stuff, like here's the things that we're trying to make work. Here's a plan. Here's our goal. Maybe this is more of a wife thing to do. I don't know. But like I very much could see myself texting this exact same message uh, to my husband. So they then exchanged a couple playful messages back and forth. And then Connie asked Rick to find out how many vacation days he had so that she could plan their upcoming cruise vacation. They ended the message with I love you's. But the very next day, on December 22nd, Connie found out that Rick had lied to her once again, costing her a lot of money. In a text that she sent him that day, Connie was furious after finding out that they owed over $1,000 to the cable company of all people. Oh my gosh. Ooh. This gives me anxiety because I've, right? like, I've totally received bills from like huge bills from companies that should not be huge bills and been like, mm-hmm. what has happened here? You know, and then you call them and you get the breakdown and it's like, okay, like they have their math right. But like, how did this happen? <laughs> yeah, my ultimate fear is a water bill being out of control because of some like crazy leak that you don't even know about outside your house. It's like flooding into the street and you just thought your neighbor had a problem or something. I'm I always hear those stories where it's like, uh, this person has a $40,000 water bill. Right. Here why How this their happens. company's yeah. not going to do anything for <laughs> right. him. And now they're going to prison. Yeah, so I absolutely get that. And the like immediate shock and fear over hearing something like that. Like, how, how do you figure this out? And so the text from her read, quote, I have been on the phone with Comcast for the last two hours. They are saying our bill was $302 a month instead of $149 because you added the sports channels. They are not paying me back. So we're out over $1,200 for cable, in all capital letters, for this. And you again lied to me, and I am again cleaning up your mess, end quote. But Rick tells Connie that he never even added sports channels to their plan. So I can see where she's frustrated because she knows they're telling her it's sports channels. He's telling her he didn't do it. But and like she knows she didn't add any sports channels. She didn't channels. do it. Right. Yeah. So who did? It's obviously him, but he doesn't want to fess up. And she's having to fix this problem. So the next morning on December 23rd, Connie sent a Facebook message to her psychotherapist at 8.58 a.m. 
It said, quote, Hi, I hope you're doing well and that you are all set for the holidays. I was just thinking of you and wondering if you were still doing therapy sessions. I would love to do another hypnosis session if possible. There's been a lot going on that I would like help with. If you're not doing it any longer and know someone that could see me, I would be open to that too. Thanks so much. End quote. The therapist read the message and responded right away, calling Connie at 9.07 a.m. to find out what was going on. Connie said that she was just leaving the gym at that time, but that she needed to come in as early as possible for an appointment because she had so much going on. Sadly, Connie never made it to the appointment she made for later that same day. She was murdered shortly after this phone call. We still have so much more to get into after a quick break to hear a word from this week's sponsors. If you're looking for your new favorite go-to outfit, look no further than Faraday. Faraday makes high-quality, timeless clothing with modern design and functionality, like my new favorite, the Delaney shirt dress. It feels like a nightgown, but it's chic and it fits like a glove. It's like the comfort of a shirt dress, but with the structure of a button-down. It's not only so comfortable, but it makes it look like I actually have my act together, which is truly a miracle. All of Faraday's pieces feel like they could have been made just for you, whether it's the perfect print or a set that fits like it was made yesterday. Faraday makes clothing you actually want to wear. And Faraday is so committed to the quality of their clothes that there's a lifetime guarantee of quality. They will actually replace or fix your clothes forever, no matter what. Fast fashion is out and high quality is where it's at. And Faraday is high quality, timeless clothing with modern design and functionality. My Faraday pieces are really my go-to pieces every single time because they not only look great, but they feel great. You really can't go wrong with fashion from Faraday. Head to fairitybrand.com slash momsandmurder and use code momsandmurder at checkout to snag 20% off all your new spring staples. That's code momsandmurder at fairity, F-A-H-E-R-T-Y brand.com slash momsandmurder for 20% off. Fairitybrand.com slash momsandmurder. If you're looking to start an omega-3 supplement but aren't sure which one, check out Iwi. That's Kiwi without the K. Iwi is different than those other guys because, like Mr. Krabs from SpongeBob, Iwi has a secret ingredient, and that secret is algae. Algae is actually where fish get their omega-3s from. So by skipping the fish who consume the algae and just getting straight to the algae, you can bypass those awful fish burps. And if you don't know what we're talking about, count yourself lucky and skip those other omega-3s and go right to Iwi. I'm someone who struggles to be consistent with supplements, and if you tell me that I'm going to be burping a fish taste all day, I will very quickly skip it. But with Iwi, it's easy to take because I don't have any of those normal omega-3 icks. Thanks to Iwi skipping the fish and going straight to the algae, and thanks to this proprietary form of algae, it allows 50% more absorption, which is the highest absorption of any source of omega-3 in the world. Plus, Iwi's products are all plant-based and sustainably sourced and farmed in the U.S. It's never too late or too early to start taking Iwi. Go to iwilife.com slash moms and use code MOMS22 to save 30% on your first purchase of any Iwi product. Take advantage of this limited time offer today. I-W-I-L-I-F-E dot com slash moms. Code MOMS22 for 30% off your first purchase. iwilife.com slash moms. Code MOMS22. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Now back to the episode. So before the break, we were talking about how Connie DeBate, a 39-year-old mother of two, had been shot to death in the basement of her home after an alleged intruder came in and kind of started this attack on she and her husband, Rick. 
Rick survived this attack. He was found, after calling 911, tied to a chair in the kitchen. And he has now told the police this story about how somebody has come in and shot his wife. So right before we took the break, we had just talked about how Connie was struggling in this marriage and was having a lot of issues financially with Rick and not really sure what to do about it. She was trying to make an appointment with a therapist that she had worked with before because she kind of knew that they were heading into some territory where they might need some help. However, Connie never made it to that appointment and she was murdered shortly thereafter that phone call. So once the officers had fully cleared and secured the crime scene, three canine units were brought in to try and establish any scent trails that could have been leading away from the property. But unfortunately, they weren't able to pick up anything. Strangely, though, at one point, one of the dogs led the handler up to the ambulance where the EMS was tending to Rick and getting him ready for transport to the hospital. The investigator set up a perimeter in the area surrounding Birchview Drive and neighbors were interviewed. The people that lived directly next door to the debates said that they didn't see or hear anything out of the ordinary that day, but still there were numerous leads that were investigated. It was confirmed that Connie had gone to the gym that morning and had even been seen by an off-duty state trooper who was at the same gym when Connie was there. He was actually going to be taking the same class that she was, but they both found out that that class was canceled when they arrived. So this officer actually exchanged a few brief words with Connie in the parking lot and said that she was happy and laughing and talkative before she got into her car and drove off. The parking lot surveillance cameras showed that Connie arrived at the gym at 8.55 and she was seen leaving the parking lot at 9.08. The video showed that Connie was wearing the same clothes she was wearing when she was shot. It was also learned that Connie arrived home at 9.18 a.m., At around 1.15, two different investigators went to the hospital to speak to Rick and to get his official statement about what happened. Before the interview, the investigators asked the hospital staff about Rick's wounds, and they were told that these wounds were not life-threatening. So the investigators took note of all the wounds, you know, based on what the hospital staff said, which was that he had two small parallel lacerations on his right thigh, he had three small lacerations on his left thigh, He had this oblong-shaped burn to the lower outside portion of uh, one of his calves. He had more cuts to his chest area near his armpits. Just a lot of really surface-level scrapes and cuts, but nothing that was super deep or seemed really aggressive. He had some scabbed abrasions on his left wrist, but there were no bruises or abrasions or any other cuts that were noted on his body that looked like he had been in any kind of a struggle or a fight. They also said that the injuries that they did find to Rick's legs were not incapacitating. He did appear that he couldn't move and that, you know, he was completely helpless when they first arrived on the scene and were talking to him. But they, you know, after looking him over, they were like, yeah, nothing, none of his injuries would have prevented him from just getting, you know, from moving around very easily. So if you recall, Rick also said that he had been attacked and poked and kind of prodded and cut with this razor or knife of some type. So based on the investigator's experience, they knew that a standard household razor knife, which would be, you know, typical to cause these slashing type of lacerations due to how sharp they are. So of course, the investigators who have experience kind of with these types of crimes and with these types of attacks, they know that 
A standard household razor knife is typically used to cause slashing type of lacerations because they're really sharp and they have like a pretty small size. And then there's longer bladed knives, such as the one that Rick described being used against him, that are typically associated with more stabbing puncture wounds. So that didn't line up with, you know, what Rick was saying that the intruder was using on him didn't match up with the actual injuries that he had. So they found, of course, all of this very interesting, you know, given Rick's story that this was such a violent attack. And of course, his wife was murdered in this attack, but then his injuries are very superficial compared to everything else that has gone on. Yeah. After taking note of Rick's condition, they went to speak with him. This conversation was really a mess. Rick's recollection and retelling of the story continued to evolve and change as the investigators pressed him for more details. Now, there are some important pieces of background information we want to touch on before we get into the story or stories that Rick actually gave to the police. The first is that Rick was a pistol permit holder and he owned two guns that were stored inside the home. One was a 357 Ruger handgun that held five rounds, which Rick kept loaded in a safe down in the basement in the wood room. The key to the safe was on top of a windsurfing board that he had located in the same room, but the ammo was not kept in the same location. Rick's other gun was another 357 Ruger 6 shot revolver, which was kept unloaded with a lock on it inside of another safe in the primary bedroom closet. According to Rick, they had only owned the two handguns for a couple of months, and Connie had never shot either one of them before. He said that the handgun in the basement was brand new and had never been fired before, and the gun in the bedroom was purchased about a month and a half earlier at Hoffman's Gun Center in Newington. So when Rick starts his interview with police at the hospital, he began by saying that on the morning of December 23rd, he got the two kids off on the school bus at 8.10 a.m. Rick then drove the kids down their long driveway and waited for the bus with them. Then he went back to the house to get his work shirt on. When Rick returned to the house to get dressed, he saw Connie getting ready for the gym. She was looking for her shoes that she would wear to spin class. At about 8.20, Rick was leaving for work and he saw Connie backing out of the driveway. Rick headed out with about a 40-minute drive ahead of him to get to work. Five minutes into the drive, Rick realized that he forgot his laptop. And at about that same time, he started getting these text alerts about the alarm going off. So Rick pulled over, he sends his boss an email saying he's going to be late because he needed to go back home to check on this alarm system. And that's when Rick drove back home and he arrived home five minutes later. Rick told the officers that he heard a noise when he got home, but he thought it was one of his cats. But then when he got upstairs and went into his bedroom, he found an intruder in the closet. Rick had a hard time describing this intruder beyond what he was wearing because the intruder had his face and head covered, of course. Rick said that the intruder began attacking him, throwing him around in the closet. He specifically used the term manhandling. He said the intruder also demanded that Rick hand over his wallet, his credit cards, and his PIN numbers, which Rick provided to him. And he claimed that the intruder then threatened his children. And then moments later, Connie arrived home in the middle of all this chaos, so he started yelling for her to run. This was one of several inconsistencies in Rick's story. If you recall, when he talked to the officers at the scene, he said that he was already tied to the chair when Connie got home, not upstairs in his closet with the intruder. Now he was saying that the intruder began yelling at him and then pushed him down the stairs before following Connie into the basement. Rick said that he ran after them, but when he got down the stairs, it was dark and he couldn't make out much of what was happening. But he did see that there was a gun out, and before he knew it, the intruder fired a shot, killing Connie. He said it was at that point that the intruder started tying him up to the chair and kept poking him with sharp objects. 
All the while, he says he can't hear because his ears are ringing. Next, the intruder started putting things in a box as if he was going to use a blowtorch that he had to light it on fire. Rick said that he had his right hand free as well as one of his legs, and he was able to fight back, burning the intruder in the process. So just another note here, when the officers actually found Rick, it was his right hand that was tied to the chair. So it's just these little inconsistencies as Rick right. is kind of relaying the story over and over again that the police are like, you know, wait a minute, your right hand was tied to the chair. So are you sure it was your right hand or was it your left hand? And then he's saying different, you know, different things at different yeah. times. So it's like, what really happened here? So Rick said that the intruder dropped the torch and fled the scene and through his dizziness and, of course, with this chair tied to his arm and leg, he then crawled up the stairs and hit the panic button on the alarm. Eight minutes later, he made it to the kitchen counter and was able to get his phone to dial 911, which is interesting because the panic button is also right there next to his phone in the kitchen. Yeah. So what was he doing for those eight minutes? Rick stated that all these events occurred over a span of about five minutes from the time he came home and found the intruder to the time Connie came home to the time that she was shot and he dialed 911. He said all of that happened in a span of five minutes. Rick said the next thing that he remembered was the firefighter coming in and hearing him call for backup. As Rick was giving this statement to the investigators, they were typing it out and asking clarifying questions just to make sure they had his statement correct. At one point during the interview, Rick said, quote, the more I talk to you, the less I remember, end quote. And as the conversation progressed, Rick started to act erratically, and he was saying he couldn't get the bang out of his head. During the process of answering some of these questions about the little details, Rick's story continued to evolve. He told them that he woke up on December 23rd at around 5.30 a.m. He said Connie woke up at 7.15, got dressed in her workout clothes, and said she was going to the gym. Rick left for work at around 8.20, at which time he saw his wife Connie looking for her spinning shoes in her car. But now he said he didn't actually see Connie leave the house as he had claimed to have seen before. So when they asked when the alarm would have been set, Rick said that he said it, quote, a couple of times, end quote, and he may have disarmed it when he left, but he couldn't remember. So the officer points out to him if he had set the alarm, that would mean that Connie left before him. So Rick pauses for a while and then says, quote, I was trying to do it through my phone, so I wasn't even at the house. I was assuming she left on time, so when I was parked, doing emails and stuff, I was screwing around with the alarm too. She should have been gone by then. I wouldn't have said it if she was at the house, end quote. Which is a wild thing to say because the last thing I want is somebody setting an alarm while I'm still in the house. That, that doesn't right. seem like something you would ever do. Rick again said that it was about five minutes into his drive that he gets this alert about the alarm going off, but he didn't know where specifically in the residence the notification was coming from, and he conveniently deleted those notifications. So after getting the notification that the alarm was going off, Rick emails his boss that he'd be late and headed back to his house to check on things. He said he didn't want to tell his boss that he had actually forgotten his laptop, so he used this alarm thing as a cover for going back to get his computer. But he really wasn't that concerned about the alarm, and he really didn't think twice about it at first. Rick added even more details to the story as the investigators probed for more information. So he alleged that when he came upon the intruder in the closet, the masked man pulled out a knife and threatened him with it just before Connie came home and all the chaos broke out. He also said that he recognized the gun that had been used to shoot Connie as being his own, the one that they had kept down in the basement. He said he assumed that Connie had gone downstairs, gotten it from the safe, and the intruder was able to overtake her and gain control of the gun, turning it on her. 
Rick said he was in shock as the intruder forcibly led him to the folding chair and began tying him up. Which also, who ties somebody to a folding chair? That is, anybody can just waddle around with a folding chair. That doesn't make any sense to me. Rick said that almost everything used in the attack were actually things that Rick had at his house. For example, the zip ties that were used to tie him to the chair were his own. And the utility knife used to poke and jab at Rick was, quote unquote, probably his as well. The intruder also allegedly had on yellow gloves, just like the ones that Rick had. And the torch used to attempt starting a fire, guess what? It also belonged to Rick. And we still have more to get into this story after one last break to hear word from this week's sponsors. If you're looking to learn a new skill or immerse yourself in something you've only dreamed of, Masterclass is the place for you. With Masterclass, you can learn from the world's best minds anytime, anywhere, and at your own pace. You can learn how to use your voice as an instrument from Mariah Carey or improve your makeup skills from Sir John or learn the art of magic from Penn & Teller. With over 100 classes from a range of world-class instructors, that thing you've always wanted to do is closer than you think. I started Sir John's makeup skills class with my daughter. She's always asking me things about makeup, and I truly could not be less qualified to speak about it. But Sir John is. He went from working at a MAC makeup counter to working with people like Carly Kloss and Beyonce. Maybe you've heard of them. By the end of the class, we will have learned three makeup looks, and we're already learning those basics about makeup and skincare that I really had no idea about. But what's so great is we can sit down for 10 minutes with the iPad or on a phone and just watch and soak in the information Sir John is sharing. And thanks to the flexibility of Masterclass, we were able to listen to some of the skincare tips the other morning in the car. We highly recommend you check it out. Get unlimited access to every Masterclass. And as a Moms and Murder listener, you can get 15% off an annual membership. Go to masterclass.com slash momsandmurder now. That's masterclass.com slash momsandmurder for 15% off Masterclass. With no fees or minimums, banking with Capital One is the easiest decision in the history of decisions. Even easier than deciding to listen to another episode of your favorite podcast. And with no overdraft fees, is it even a decision? That's banking reimagined. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. See CapitalOne.com slash bank. Capital One N.A. Member FDIC. Want to get away? Yeah, I do too. But since that's not really on the agenda anytime soon, I'll have to settle for a different kind of journey. And you can too, all with a fun mobile game. June's Journey allows you to enter the realm of June Parker, where an extraordinary adventure awaits. Best of all, no plane tickets needed. Say goodbye to the ordinary and immerse yourself in a world where intrigue meets elegance, courtesy of the drama-filled exploits of June Parker. Whether you're in need of a riveting mystery or simply yearning to escape the monotony of everyday life, June's Journey is your gateway to excitement. Follow June as she unravels hidden family secrets and navigates the intricate web surrounding her sister's demise. It's sort of like an upscale soiree minus the dull weather discussions, although we secretly enjoy those too. But hold on to your pearls as June's Journey is no ordinary mobile game. I'm deep in the fifth chapter, with each section proving more enjoyable than the last. From the awe-inspiring scenery to the catchy tunes, every aspect of June's journey exudes sophistication and refinement. Don't hesitate any longer. Step into June's world and let the thrilling adventure commence. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Now back to the episode. Okay, so before the break, we were just talking about kind of more of the lies that are being uncovered that Rick DeBate has 
told the police lies and inconsistencies in this story about what happened the day an alleged intruder broke into his home and shot his wife, Connie. So after Rick finished giving his complete statement to the investigators, they had him sign it, and then they continued to ask a few more questions that were related to, you know, the background and the dynamic of his marriage with Connie. Rick told them things had been going pretty good between them, but that Connie had been angry and depressed lately, but he said that it was getting better. He said they had contemplated divorce at one point, but they'd worked through it, and they were continuing to work on their marriage. And recently, they had even taken a trip to Vermont together that turned out to be a pretty romantic trip. He said they had a cruise plan for the following summer, and their marriage and life was pretty typical at this point. But as the details of the shooting and the background information continued to unfold, theories about what actually happened began to form. An autopsy performed on Connie showed that she had been shot two times, once in the lower left side stomach area and once in the back of her head. The medical examiner couldn't say which shot came first, but the bullet wound in the stomach area didn't bleed as much, so he did believe that she was shot in the head first and was most likely dead when she was shot a second time. Therefore, she didn't bleed as much. Connie was found to have no defensive wounds on her body. On the outside of the debate home, Connie's vehicle was parked on the driveway. It was in front of the right side of the garage, which was open. Rick's car was backed into a different parking area across from the garage with the front of his car facing down the driveway, which the neighbors actually said was a little strange because if he had just come home to get his laptop the way their driveway was set up, he would have just most likely pulled in nose first instead of taking this time right. to back his car into this special parking spot. The investigators also noticed that a window was missing in the basement, but there were no pry marks and there was no damage to the window itself. The mulch on the ground in front of the window was also undisturbed, and there was even a layer of untouched dust on the windowsill as well as cobwebs along the top and side of the window. So it wasn't like somebody came over there, you know, quickly smashed out the window and disturbed everything around. It was like somebody took out this window. So they found Rick's wallet still containing his credit cards and some cash in the grass outside the back of the house. Inside of the home, the investigation led to even more questions. There was no sign of a forced entry, any type of burglary, or a struggle. The blood evidence told a different story than the one Rick had given, too. The trails of blood in the house indicated that Rick was upright and walking when he went to the basement stairs and partially down the hallway, and then again for about six feet until he got into the kitchen where his phone was. It was determined that Rick must have been dragging his legs across the floor to create smear marks in the blood droplets. Down in the basement, blood evidence showed that Rick wasn't attached to the chair down there either, as he had claimed. So specifically, they were looking at the ground and kind of the area where they were finding drops of blood, and they noticed that there was no void in this drops of blood. Like if there was something like a chair sitting there in the middle of it, like there wouldn't be blood obviously under the area that, you know, the chair was covering up. And there was nothing like that. And there was also no pooled blood or like blood pooling to indicate that Rick had been seated on this chair and placed in the same position like while he was continuously bleeding. It was just a bunch of blood droplets, but no pattern that would indicate like, hey, there was a chair here at one point while he was bleeding in it. The wild thing about this story is it did not happen very long ago and like – If you've ever even seen a CSI commercial, you should know the capabilities that they have now in forensics. I mean, obviously, has anyone watched Dexter? I was thinking Dexter (laughs) too, Dexter Morgan. But really, like, there is so much that's come out that, like, this 
you could be a little off, but this is so far off on every level. Like, how do you not see that that <laughs> signs are going to be pointing to you immediately? Right. So on the floor near the couch was a small pile of paper that appeared to have been burnt, potentially the source of the smoke smell that the firefighter who first responded had encountered when he arrived on the scene. A razor knife and a hammer were found in the same area. There was blood also found on this knife. There was also a yellow torch next to the burnt paper. Interestingly, though, the knife was found to have partial prints on it, but those prints couldn't be identified. And this is interesting because Rick said this intruder actually wore gloves, and he never mentioned that he may have touched the knife himself. But the DNA that was found on the knife did match Rick. Rick's blood was also found on the blowtorch, but not his fingerprints. Inside the wood storing room where Connie was found dead, there was also no sign of a struggle, but they did find the 357 revolver that was registered to Rick. There were three spent shells and two bullets left in the chamber. The gun was otherwise in perfect condition and had no scratches or dents or any sign that it had been dropped or thrown on the floor, and there was no blood or tissue on the gun, which was strange if Connie had been shot at close range, like Rick said. Later testing found that Rick had gunshot residue on his shirt, but not on his hands. Although the test wasn't administered for about five hours after he called 911, after he'd been to the hospital, and after he's cleaned up, so it doesn't seem very far-fetched that he could have washed his hands in those five hours, potentially uh, getting the gun residue off of his hands. Not a very reliable reading, I would say. No, not at all. And especially if it's on his shirt, it's like, okay, right. well. <laughs> so the safe that the Ruger was normally kept in was found in the basement wood room on top of a storage bin that sat about two and a half feet off the ground. It was closed, but it was unlocked. And there were a number of important personal documents like insurance policies, different things like that were inside. So in the children's play area on the other side of the basement, investigators found the window that had been missing. The glass was not broken. There was also a prime mark at the base of the window frame in the wall on the inside of the basement. Rick's DNA was on the exterior of the window, but there were no identifiable prints. In the primary bedroom, investigators found no sign of a struggle. Everything was, quote, fairly neat and orderly, end quote. Connie's purse was at the right side of the bed. It hadn't been touched. In the closet, there was no sign of a struggle. Nothing was missing. The drawers of jewelry, which were visible without even opening because there was a clear plastic top on this drawer unit, they were also closed and undisturbed. Also in the closet, investigators found the other gun safe that Rick had told them about. It was hidden away so the children couldn't find it. The gun in this case was still inside. Next to the safe was a small duffel bag with three boxes of ammo. Two of the boxes were full, and the third was missing five bullets. Those are the ones that were found in the basement. In the garage, investigators found more metal folding chairs. This is just wild to me that you have your ammo in a different location, and the intruder knows that your ammo right. is in another location, basically two stories away, right? Because they were in the basement. It's right. on the... Oh my gosh. Okay. Right. Well, and it's okay. it's just a lot because it's every it's not just that. It's just everything. You know, right now according to Rick's story, he's saying that not only did this person come into their home as a home invasion, but this intruder didn't bring anything with him, not even his own weapons. Nope. He was just going to hopefully find something when he got there. And wow, what a miracle that he found all these things, a knife, a gun, a torch, all these things. He just happened to find once he got inside of their home, which 
I'm not saying it can't happen, but typically I am a home invader is not going. Yeah. A home invasion doesn't go that way um, regularly. You know, they, they definitely have a plan and they have usually a weapon if they're in, you know, invading a home that might be occupied because that's a home invasion. So it's very far fetched to think that this, a stranger would break in unarmed and then manage to find all of these things in a five minute span, which is what Rick said that was all it took. Right. So they would have to at least have one of these things, right? At least one of them they came prepared with. Right. So say they came with the gloves and they were able to find all of it. Okay. But there's no way you break into somebody's home without a weapon. That absolutely not. I refuse to believe that ever, but especially in this case. Right. So all in all, the evidence at the crime scene, of course, is telling a much different story than the one Rick is trying to sell to the police. But at the end of his interview with the detectives at the hospital later that afternoon, Rick ended up revealing a shocking bombshell. When investigators were questioning him about his relationship with Connie, he confessed something that only heightened the suspicion around him. Rick alleged that he and Connie had decided together to have a little bit of an unconventional relationship. He said that Connie wanted to have another baby, but she wasn't able to because of various health issues. And at the same time, their friend Sarah, a single woman, also wanted to have a baby, but she wasn't able to because she didn't have a partner. She wasn't married. Rick claimed that he was originally going to donate his sperm to Sarah, but when they found out about how expensive that was, they decided to just do it the old-fashioned way. And the next thing they knew, Sarah was pregnant. According to Rick... Connie was completely unbothered by the fact that Rick had impregnated their friend. He said, quote, she was amazing. I never expected it to go that way, end quote. So the three of them, Rick, Connie, and Sarah, were allegedly supposed to all raise this child together as co-parents. As far as for how they knew Sarah, Rick said he had known her from high school. He said the conception of her baby was Connie's idea, quote, in a way, and that she was well aware of everything going on. But he didn't think that Connie had told anybody about the pregnancy yet. He did say that Sarah was, quote, okay with some things, but not. Basically saying Sarah's got some reservations and issues about this whole arrangement and everything going on. So when asked if the pregnancy was accidental, Rick kind of danced around the subject and said, quote, there was cheating going on in the beginning on both sides. They asked him again if the pregnancy was unexpected, and Rick said, quote, The pregnancy was unexpected. The situation was something that we were talking about. Sarah brought it up. Connie kind of brought it up to me because she knew about Sarah. There's a lot of people not knowing a lot of things with this, end quote, which is just crazy because immediately I'm going to be like, dude, I know you are full of it 100% because like – if this was a real situation, I feel like there would be a lot more. And I'm not saying that they, they would share everything you know about this plan sure. with everybody. But like already right off the bat, whenever you're telling me that like there's a lot of things a lot of people don't know about this, it makes me think that it's not even a true situation and that you're just making this up as you go. Right? Well, and that it starts with um, we wanted to have a baby. We couldn't have a baby. So we go to this friend to have a baby. And then it's like, was it unexpected? Yeah, it was unexpected. No, you were trying to get her pregnant. That was the whole point. So which one is it? There's definitely some red flags raised with this, with the whole thing. So the answers that he continued to give about this pregnancy and about this relationship he had with Sarah and, of course, how Connie felt about it, he was giving all these really vague answers. And he didn't fully answer whether or not Connie was aware of the pregnancy. 
Despite the tragic and serious nature of this incident, Rick had no issues really lying and being misleading to the investigators regarding this specific thing, the pregnancy, you know, and this other relationship. And, you know, he initially said this was Connie's idea in a way, but then he changed the story to, as you said, now it's, you know, become an accidental pregnancy. So it's like, which is it? Was Connie in on this or did you get somebody pregnant? And it wasn't planned and Connie was upset. Like they're kind of trying to figure out like what's the angle here with this. Right. And I was going to say it has to be so hard to keep all this together for him, like to remember the stories that he's telling. But he's actually doing a terrible job He's doing a horrible job. Yeah. (laughs) So, So kudos to him for really screwing himself up here. So Rick reiterates the things between him and Connie had been really good, his opinion, lately, and that they'd been reconnecting. He said he didn't want to lie about the pregnancy, but in the beginning, it was a secretive thing because it was unexpected, which again brings us back to, we thought the whole reason you got with Sarah was to have a baby for you and Connie and to expand your family. Doesn't make sense. So he said he had a hard time telling Connie about it, and she was mad for a while when she found out, but she wanted to keep their family together and have another child. Everyone involved allegedly wanted to fix all the problems, but it was complicated because Rick said he was also romantically involved with Sarah and had been for about seven years. I love how casual he is about like, oh, yeah, well, there is this other thing. Yeah. And this other, I mean, a seven year relationship. That's not uh, what. Right. He said Connie knew something was going on between them, but she was usually not jealous. He admitted that he had planned on seeing Sarah that very night. It was explained to Rick that the more he said and the more the crime scene evidence was processed, the more questions that were arising. Rick said that he had been honest about everything he was asked, and so they told him they were going to develop a timeline based on the evidence and based on his recollection. They pointed out that there were a lot of inconsistencies with this story and that the facts really weren't adding up. And in response, all Rick had to say to this was, okay. (laughs) I mean, what else do you say at that point? I mean, like, no, I'm telling the truth. This adds up. So Rick said that he, quote unquote, froze when the intruder was inside the house and he couldn't react at normal speeds. That might be the most honest thing he said, right? As far as like, most believable anyway. Right. Most believable. Thank you. One investigator suggested that Rick could have snapped, but Rick insisted this was not true, that he did not snap. Rick did say that he understands why investigators felt like things didn't add up. So they asked him how he knew Connie was dead since he never once went to go check on her condition before calling 911 and how bizarre it was since he had the energy to get up the stairs, supposedly with this aluminum chair tied to his back, but he wasn't able to make it to the next room to check on his wife. Throughout the six-hour interview that Rick gave police, it was noted that he never cried one time. Rick was asked how he felt about taking a polygraph test and he said, quote, do it. I'm going to need to get a lawyer. I have to think smart now if you guys are here accusing me of this. Please let me have some time with my kids, end quote. Everything he said there is very, very telling. Like he he gets that the jig is almost up. Right, it's all coming crashing down. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So the following day, which was Christmas Eve, Rick retained an attorney and the police never interviewed Rick again. But one of the most haunting quotes from the time police did get with him was, quote, I did not shoot Connie. I'm going to stick with my truth. I'm not going to lie to you, end quote. But the lies only continued to come to light. And we will have part two of this story next week. Or if you go to Patreon at the $5 and up level, we will have part two 
um, there right today. now. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yes. This story is just full of so many details and so much information. I feel like this part, part one, was probably the shorter part, actually. I have a lot more um, to cover in part two. Yeah. So it's really, um, there's just a lot here and really shocking stuff. So yeah, definitely check out part two. And if you are not a Patreon subscriber, it will be available to you next week on Tuesday. Okay, Melissa, are we ready to do a little last thing before we go? Before Absolutely. it starts raining on us, is I know. It, is it raining I know. At your I, house yet? <laughs> I'm watching it outside, and like it's coming. It's coming. I think we're actually about to get a really terrible storm. Um, my husband was telling me that they had canceled like local events and stuff that were supposed to happen today because we're expecting really crazy weather starting at like five or six. Oh, how do I not know this? This is shocking information. I know. Usually you're the one to tell me like that we're going to have- I'm the one to tell you and freak you out. Right. Dang it. I'm behind. Yeah. So it feels very summer-esque though to have these little afternoon showers. So in that spirit of um, summertime, we are going to do a little bit of trivia. And I know you love trivia. Trivia is your thing. So I found some (laughs) interesting and silly and funny little summertime trivia questions. I think we did this one year, but- I am going to pick different trivia questions this time. Probably, if you remember. I (laughs) I wouldn't remember anyway. Yes. Okay. So we'll start with something easy that hopefully you will know, and then we'll go from there. So the term SPF is seen on all sunscreen bottles. What does it stand for, Melissa? Sun protection formula. Oh, close. Sun protection factor. Factor. Yes. Okay. Yeah. No, that actually makes sense because there's some number thing with it, right? Yeah. So apparently, I didn't know this. I actually just learned this, but this is my little um, this is my little take care of yourself and your skin thing. But regular use of SPF 15 can reduce the risk of melanoma by 50, percent which is actually a lot more than Whoa. I thought. Yeah. For SPF 15, so that's not even very high. I always use at least 30, but if we're at the beach or something crazy, I go for like 50 because I'm super super pale. But um, yeah. So. Don't forget to take care of your skin and wear sunscreen. I'm like such a big sunscreen person, so I sound like probably everyone's grandmother right now. But No, but skin cancer is one that like can, you know, sneaks up on you really and living in Florida especially, like we have to wear sunscreen all the time. I finally started adding sunscreen to like my morning wash my face, put sunscreen on because you have to here really. I mean, you should anyway, but. Definitely. Okay, so do you know what the longest continuous beach in America is? Ooh, um, can I have a clue? Like a state? (laughs) It's very, like, if I was going to name the longest beach, it's a very obvious thing. Like a very... Longboat Key. (laughs) It's Long Beach, Washington. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) Nope, wouldn't have gotten that. You could have said Washington. You could have said Blank Beach. You could have said a bunch of things. I wouldn't have gotten that. Okay. Okay. Right. Right. How long is it? Does it say? Um, it is one second. It's 28 miles long. Oh, okay. Wow. That's pretty long. Yeah. But I have questions about that too. Honestly, I thought there were more. I would have thought somewhere longer. So is that just the, like at the point where they say, okay, now it's not called Long Beach after you step over this little imaginary line? Because how does that work? Because obviously here in Florida, we have a super long coast that's way longer than 28 miles. So, but it's not all just considered one beach, right? But it's still the same coast. So that's, I guess. Oof. I hate when we have to learn things from people emailing <laughs> us because that's exactly what's going to happen this week. 
Go ahead. Email us. We don't know. We, we don't have know. no clue. We Stop no clue. emailing us after Thursday, though. If you yeah. listen Tuesday, you can <laughs> email Tuesday, Wednesday. Emails. Yeah, we've already We will not emails. answer after Thursday. No. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Okay, so ice pops. Did you know that they were invented by an 11-year-old boy? Yes. No, I didn't. Yeah. Tell me more. Yeah, it was an 11-year-old boy named Frank Epperson, and he mixed water and sweetened soda powder, dunked a wooden stirrer in it, and left the mixture out in the cold overnight, and he called this result an epsicle. So that was what the first kind of like popsicle was. But what year do you think that was? 1910. Close. Actually, way closer than I thought you would be. It was 1905. (laughs) <laughs> Whoa. So I actually think that was a Google the city fact. So oh, I, was didn't, it? <laughs> I didn't retain it and neither did you. <laughs> well, there you go. But at least it kind of, it was in there somewhere. It was in your there memory you go. somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, this one I love because <laughs> it's just hysterical that they call it this. Which park, this is actually a national park. I'll give you that clue. Okay. Which park do you think in this country hosts a massive event called Meet and Mate and it's a night for fireflies. I guess you can view them meeting and mating, but they call it meet and mate night. <laughs> I am such an American that I was thinking meet and mate like you go eat hot dogs and maybe like <laughs> it's like a dating thing. Well, but that's like fair very because much we're talking about driven. yeah, we're talking about summer, so it made sense that your brain went to I went to barbecue. Like, yeah, barbecue <laughs> meat. Yeah. No, this is called meet and mate. Meet and mate night for fireflies. And it's a national park. It's I mean, I would say park. Yellowstone because I just don't know any parks. That's a good guess. Yeah. Great Smoky Mountains National Park. Oh, nice. Okay. That yeah. sounds cool. I kind of want to do that. The event is held annually in late May or early June. So check it out if you're in that area because it's going on right now. You can go meet and mate. <laughs> well, maybe but not I you. I don't really just love the, the name. <laughs> just the fireflies are meeting and mating. Maybe yeah. not the people. <laughs> Bring a hot dog. See who you meet. <laughs> Perfect. Okay. I have a last one, and it's a little surprising to me because I really – I thought the answer was going to be somewhere in Florida, and it wasn't. So, Melissa, where do you think the World Margarita Championship is held each year in August? Can I just tell you, I am 0% for these, so this is really hard for me right now. Um, <laughs> the World Margarita, I would say – It's a festival for tasting of margaritas and tequilas, cocktail competitions, food sampling, live music, and art events. It's just like a festival for like those kind of things. Where do you think that is? Can I say New Orleans? I'm going to say New Orleans, Louisiana. Surprisingly, this is in Tucson, Arizona. Son of a beastie boy. Nothing is going on in Tucson, Arizona. I mean, congratulations to you I mean, they have the World Margarita Championship. Fine. They can have it. Maybe that wasn't on your summer vacation destination list but that happens in now august so now it is now yeah. out of spite i'm not doing it, <laughs> now it is. oh that's cool though yeah all right so those were just some little summertime fun trivia facts i think they were fun i think meet they and were is my favorite thing ever i mean i truly <laughs> cannot believe how opposite i went with my guests all right guys well we will be back next week with part two of our story on the murder of connie debate we hope you guys have a wonderful week and we will see you then (laughs) have a great week bye thanks so much for listening to the moms and murder podcast make sure to check back with us next week for a new episode you can also find us at momsandmurder.com where you can connect with us via social media please make sure you subscribe and give us five stars because giving us four stars would be a crime thanks so much